On today's episode of Demand Gen U, we're bringing back Silvio. Silvio's role has changed over the last couple months. So we'll talk through what his role was, how it's changed, and what he's doing today. And most importantly, why it brings him interesting perspective on what's happening right now in B2B marketing. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. Alrighty, Silvio, always a pleasure to have you on. I feel like these are, no offense, Jason, some of the most fun episodes because you and I, one, make fun of each other, and then two, we just riff on things really naturally. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. It's always a blast. <laughs> well, I'm going to pump you up a little bit before we get to the exciting stuff. I, well, I think it's all exciting, but you are in a new role at Metadata. So why don't we talk through what this uh, new role is for you and why you're so excited about it? Oh man, I'm so pumped. I am now the head of product innovation at Metadata, which is really exciting. Um, fun fact, I used to first, when I first started Metadata, I was actually a consultant working with the product team full on and the marketing team. So I was working with you and then I was also working with Elena, our VP of product, and I was helping work and build Google ads into the platform in Metadata back then. And then I've also helped with uh, display and programmatic, building that into Metadata, working with the product en engineering team. And essentially now as head of product innovation, I'll be working full-time on the product team. And essentially I'll be like the bridge between product and the rest of the company. So when it comes to customer research and feedback, we're hosting an event in SF on the 8th, which is pretty exciting of product offsite to get feedback. Uh, when it comes to experimentation, I work pretty closely with you and Brittany on, on the marketing team and you know, testing and doing experimentation, see what's working outside of the platform. What can we bring into the platform, right? To expand our capabilities, uh, whether it's like enhancing existing channels, uh, testing new channels. Another big part of it too is scoping out new channels as well. So working with the product engineering team, what are the new channels we're going to integrate with? What does that look like in terms of like the actual architecture of the channels? You know, building that out. Data supplier evaluation, all the new data sources we're going to bring into metadata, expand our audience targeting capabilities. Talking through GDPR, CCPA, you know, all that. This stuff. guy is a machine. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty unique role, you know, and I'm super pumped. Like I love the metadata platform. Like I've got to experience it as a customer, as a, you know, actual user, as a consultant. Um, so it's, it's really great. And kind of having that feedback in the product team is, it's awesome. So I'm curious, and just for everyone listening, these are not all, you know, softball lob questions to Silvio. I actually don't know the answer to this. So I'm going to ask, we never, yeah. <laughs> like we never prepare. It's literally like, yo man, you want to do, you want to do a podcast? All right, let's go. <laughs> we just get on. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it feels one, like a, you're the perfect person for this role. It also feels like a really unique role. Did you have to make a case for this role or how did it come about? It was just kind of what was the most impactful for the business in terms of like contributions for me and, and what I can help with, um, in terms of like, you know, I, I have, I guess you would call me like a subject matter expert in terms of like the channels and the advertising background, but then I'm also have been our ICP. And then I've also been our client essentially. So in terms of like impact to the business, having me full-time in product, giving feedback, you know, collecting feedback from customers, hosting events, taking that feedback, all the new releases, the new capabilities, making sure customers are aware of that so they can best utilize the platform and get results, making sure CSMs understand the new capabilities, sales understands the new capabilities, you know, like literally across the department, making sure our knowledge base is up to date so that we have, 
you know, uh, how to and things like that. It was really just, I had a conversation with Gil, our CEO, and it just made the most sense and kind of where um, my skill set best lied. No, I'm excited and uh, very excited to keep working with you very closely in this new role. It's going to be awesome, not just for you and selfishly for me and the rest of the marketing team, but I think awesome for our customers too, just given like you've sat at every seat of the table that you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, it's super bittersweet too, because I, when I first joined, like I was originally, it was like the, the ad operations team and it was like me and like three, four people. And we were all like dying, tons of accounts, like little resources, basically took that team from the ad ops team, transformed it into performance marketing. Now they're strategizing, advising customers, giving feedback. Like they are freaking like, like ad assassins, you know what I mean? Like they're, I'm so proud of them. And like now the team is like 17 people. They're fully self-sufficient. They're answering each other's questions. Like, you know, it's like night and day. So it's bittersweet because like, obviously like help build the team from the ground up. Um, but I know like they're like, now we've got Jess, who's going to do an amazing job and like, just take it to the next level. I love it. All right. Now that we got the first exciting thing out of the way, let's get to the second exciting thing. So on the intro, I had mentioned you have a really unique perspective given what you see across metadata customers, in addition to everything that you do outside of metadata as like side gigs. So you see a lot of B2B advertising, probably more than anybody I know, which is why I love talking with you because I feel so dumb and I learn a lot of things. But what we want to talk about on today's episode are some of the big things that you are seeing, you know, good or bad across all of the different B2B accounts, you know, that you've gotten into over the course of 2022. So for everybody listening in the seven and a half minutes of prep that Silvio and I did, he gave me four reasons and then one surprise. So hopefully the surprise is good. If it sucks, it's Silvio's fault. No, I'm kidding. It'll be good. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we'll go from it's there. It's going to be so, great. <laughs> it always is with you. So first thing, and uh, it's it's interesting. This is something that I get, I don't want to say heated, but it's just everyone's talking about it right now is this shift from, you know, call it demand capture, call it, you know, gated content, call it whatever you want to yeah. more awareness-based advertising. And I think a lot of people are talking about it as like this notion of demand creation. So before I get on my soapbox again, just kind of tell me what you're seeing right now with this and we can riff on it. Yeah. The first big shift I've noticed is the amount of advertisers that are mo moving towards awareness, demand creation, and away from traditional lead gen has been massive and like substantial. So much so that from a product perspective, that is a big focus of ours, right? And we have a lot of couple exciting things on the way in terms of enabling that and making it easier for folks. And that has been a huge thing. So I'm talking companies that are spending over $300,000 a month consistently on lead gen based campaigns, shifting to awareness, like almost overnight, which has been substantial. There's one company that comes to mind that was like, of all the companies, that's like the most hardcore lead gen, if you will. And I remember talking with their VP of marketing and basically I was advising them on, on making the shift to demand creation from their current approach. And he told me, he's like, Silvio, like we're spending, you know, freaking 300 grand a month on, on lead gen right now. And we're generating an obscene amount of leads. But when he actually looked at those leads that converted into revenue, paid social as a channel was so unprofitable that if he just kept doing that, 
it just, you know what I mean? He's not gonna have a job, so to speak, right? So that has been, I would say, one of the biggest shifts by far. But the one thing I do wanna add, which is the trap that everyone falls into when they first make this shift, is they, from a tactical perspective, they shift their campaigns to awareness base, they shift their offers to, you know, content, driving to a landing page, or maybe it's in-feed, but their content isn't good enough. They don't really put the energy and the effort. And I'm laughing because I literally put a LinkedIn post out today on exactly what you're going to say. So keep going. <laughs> yeah, like that's it. And it's, and it's like, and then, you know, fast forward a month, two months, and they're like, you know, and they're looking at, you know, uh, blended organic or blended opportunity volume, cost, et cetera self-reported, you know, all the, all the bells and whistles everybody talks about on LinkedIn every day. And they're like, well, why isn't working? You know what I mean? And it's like, your content has to actually, and this is why I like calling it demand creation more so than brand awareness, because brand awareness typically is like, oh, I served an impression. They're aware, right? Versus demand creation is like, you are literally creating a, an interest and desire for your product or category, right? It's a much deeper level of uh, relationship than just I served an impression and now you are quote unquote aware, right? And to do that is to create that desire is you have to expose pain. You have to expose problems. And oftentimes when you're marketing to an un unaware audience, they don't know what they don't know. So it, it takes even more work. So your content has to be that much better. So whether that's you have internal subject matter experts that can create that content for you, you can incentivize them, help get their name out there or you can collaborate with other folks. But that is like a huge miss that of the folks that are making the transition to demand creation, they haven't put enough thought in terms, in terms of what are they actually promoting to create. I mean, you nailed it because when I was ranting about this earlier today, I was saying that most companies when making the shift or most B2B marketers ungate their content and don't change it at all and then just start running ads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. And I hate to tell you, you're not going to create demand that way. Like you have no. to come up with a point of view. You have to show people why the way that they work is broken in a way that they never realized before. And like you educate them on this and they're nodding their heads and they're like, wow, you get me. I didn't know that what I was doing is messed up. Like there's a better way and you can take me to that promised land as Andy Raskin calls it. Yeah. It's hard as hell. And it's, there's so much more that goes into it than just lighting up ads and ungating content. And you have to put that much more effort into, it sounds funny, the marketing component to it, like actual psychology and getting to change people's behaviors. And, you know, we're doing that right now. It's a gradual process. It takes time, but it is not ungating yeah. content and run ads. And you, it takes, and the reason why I think people don't, I think people conceptually get that. But it also takes a level of vulnerability because you have to put your ass on the line. You know what I mean? And you need to, and when I say put your ass on the line, I mean in the sense of you need to rise above what you're capable of right now, which is uncomfortable, right? And then the second thing is you're, when you're going against a point of view, it's in some ways like contradictory and uh, contrarian and you are yeah. opening yourself up for negative feedback, right? You are literally challenging the status quo, which is the opposite of taking the complacent path. Yeah, it's, uh, it was weird for me because I had never worked at a company that was doing this until I got to metadata. And 
it took us a little bit of time before we got started with it. But, you know, you don't want to open yourself up to negative feedback consistently. Like mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't feel good. It's healthy at the end of the day. And that's how you improve your campaign and your messaging and everything that you go uh, about with your marketing. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's an uncomfortable feeling when you first make the jump. It's the same thing when you're like a personal content creator and you start creating content for the first time, you know, you're going to get bad comments. It's part of the game, you know, but it's, it's so much more impactful when you grow from it as an individual. And it's the same applies at an organization when it's just across teams of people, you know? Yep. So one quick question on this point, we could probably do a full episode on it. Maybe we will, but this has come up, I think, a few different times. I think it came up during our last CAB meeting, our customer advisory board, but someone had asked, hey, I'm, I think it was either I'm ready to make the, the switch to more demand creation advertising uh, or we're thinking about it and we haven't done it just yet. How do you measure it? And I know measurement always comes up and you can't measure it in the same way. So without giving away the entire formula for people who are starting to make this move, like what would you recommend that they start to measure for success? Yeah, this is so tough and almost it can get too, you can you can take this as simple as you want or as complicated as you want. And it's a very fine line between the two. Wait, B2B marketers make it <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> SQL, FAL, you know what I mean? XQL, like, you know, every day is like a different acronym. And essentially... There's, think, the way I think about it is like leading and lagging indicators, essentially. And this is actually something that I'm also looking for more feedback from a product perspective because, you know, like I said, we're doing a lot on this front. And essentially from leading indicators, the things that you can, can control that ideally by doing this and focusing on this, you'll, you'll generate more lagging indicators. So the leading indicators so far are ad engagement. So for example, comments, are you getting good comments, good responses? the people who are engaging and liking, is it reflective of your ideal customer profile, right? If you're trying to get in front of directors of marketing and you see students of marketing liking your stuff, eh, your targeting's probably off, right? It's not good. So engagement is one. Uh, another one as well is content engagement. So that could be, if it's in-feed, that could be in the form of video views. So video view completion is people watching 25, 50, 75% of your video that's also a content in- engagement offsite on your actual website, so off-platform. So time on page, bounce rate, uh, all these different things. Essentially, are people actually enjoying your content, returning visits? Another one as well is if you look at branded search traffic and paid branded search traffic, so organic and paid, are you noticing uh, an increase over time? Right? Are more people returning and essentially getting uh, aware of your site? So I would say those are like the, the key leading indicators that you can control. I would say like more of like a mid indicator, not super lagging, but mid is more like, is it coming up in sales conversations, self-reported attribution? Are people like noting that they came from a channel that you've been pushing? So like, if you've really been pushing your content strategy, maybe trying to grow your LinkedIn company page, is that coming up more often in terms of self-reported attribution? By the way, for the people listening, if you have rolled out self, self-reported attribution, even in that you can overcomplicate it. We were actually just that came up today in the <laughs> and yep. just keep it simple. Like we don't even have anything fancy. It's literally like a single text field. People can write whatever they want. We literally have a, I was looking at it the other day, like somebody put like black shade emoji as like their answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Some some of the answers are pretty funny. They like are. I, they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw somebody put like, you're everywhere. <laughs> that, so I'm referring to that. And then somebody was like, I know what you're doing with self-attribution. I'm not telling you or something. Yeah. Like that's that. the benefit of marketing to marketers, right? Like we have the most uh, aware audience, right? Like, and skeptical as well. But yeah, essentially you have that. And then the lagging indicators would be, you know, are we driving more demos? Are we driving more opportunities? Are we driving more revenue, et cetera? So really the name of the game with demand creation is you want to try to build desire and interest for your product or category. And the way you're going to do that by is by, you know, creating amazing content that exposes those pains, right? The benefits of your products, right? And essentially move them to have that hand raiser moment, whether they get a demo or a free trial, and then they can move further into your life cycle. I love it. Alrighty, next one. And this is something I know I get questions on whenever I jump in on a customer call, but driving free trials is really hard and driving demos is hard, especially when you're not incentivizing people. Yeah. If it were that easy, like we would probably be out of jobs. So it's hard. So like, what are you seeing people, uh, you know, either struggle with or finding things that are working with this? Cause it's, it's difficult to crack. It's so tough. It's so driving for everyone listening, the PLG folks, I resonate and I feel your pain. I used to work for a PLG company they're actually like a hybrid. They had a PLG motion and they had a sales led motion and driving free trials is so tough. And I'm noticing that across the board, across all many customers that are trying, trying to drive uh, free trials, it's, it's so difficult. And the reason why is because free trial it, in terms of creative and, and also demo, but more so free trial, like people are missing the mark. And I've, I'm actually working on a shameless plug, a LinkedIn post about free trials. And this isn't shameless. You're like you're a, like the goat of B2B advertising. Yeah, like, you're good. The, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Honestly, like it's just it never. That's true. It like, never stops. Done. Like <laughs> the, my level of stupidity and like, <laughs> but I appreciate it. But when it comes to free trial, the biggest gap and why people are struggling to make it happen, obviously outside of like nailing in your audience, is the creative itself. So the, like, I've been studying like some of the best uh, metadata customers that are driving free trials in addition to just like other companies outside of metadata. And one of the things that I've noticed that they all do is they speak to use cases of their product that people can understand. So a lot of the times when people create these free trial ads that just don't convert and they don't work, it's like, I don't get it, dude. Like, what are you saying? Like, what's the, like, what is the tangible takeaway? And oftentimes you know, I, I learned this from a, a great book called uh, Cashvertising. It's like the idea of having a big promise in your copy and you want to have one big promise with your message. So oftentimes like the companies that struggle with free trial is like they're kind of trying to talk about their, their whole value prop as a whole. And it's a lot more powerful if they just spoke to a specific use case. You know, so if you, we all know like what are those common use cases that customers like we kind of refer to as like, oh shit moments where they're like, oh my God, like this is amazing. You can do this thing. And really taking out those different use cases and highlighting it so people can tangibly understand really quickly. Like if I use this, if I sign up for a free trial from this software, I can use it for this reason. And I think that's a big gap that I've noticed. And one of my favorite, I have a lot, but one of them, give them a shout out. They got acquired by LinkedIn is Aribi. Highly recommend everybody study Aribi and their ads. They work phenomenal. And I, I have no doubt it's why they got acquired by LinkedIn. And they would position themselves against Google Analytics. And they, and like, that's also super powerful. So they would use like, they would show use cases of like, actually, hold on really quick, just because I know what 
uh, Uribe is. Yeah. I don't know if everybody else knows. Can you just give like a quick background of like what it does and then jump back into it? Yeah, it's basically, it's an ana analytics tool. So it's a replacement for Google Analytics. So if you want to understand, you know, your engagement, you understand people's activity through your website. So to conversion. So think of it as like another Google Analytics, but just uh, from a different company. It's like the easiest way of explaining it. And it's, it's like... I think without, I mean, you know, way more than I do here, but like it's supposed to do a lot of that out of the box. Yes. Yeah, so like you normally have to set up events in GA, like yeah. it will automate all of it for you, track all those key touch points and just really out of the box solution. And they actually speak for that and they're creative, which is really cool. And they position against it. So like kind of what we're talking about, like old versus new way, like they'll put like Google analytics and they put like a potato and then they put like Arebi and it's like this beautiful, majestic, like Greek God, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and they'll make it super tangible to understand like, oh, that's what you do. And then they would highlight use cases as well of like how to understand people going through your funnel through Arebi as a use case versus GA, you know what I mean? And it's like things like that is, is really what people need to lead more on. But the reason they don't is it's, it's a much harder lift from a creative perspective, right? You have to get a lot more creative just in terms of like your ideation and your concept, but then also in terms of your execution and like, how do you actually showcase that? So that's awesome. You already gave me a few ideas for some of our metadata ads. Now, how much of what you just said also holds true for like demo ads? Is it, this, is it similar things that you're seeing? Is it different? Like hit me. I would say for demo, it's, it's more so... Trial for sure. I've noticed like the specific use case is, has been more prevalent for demo. It's more around like pain point, uh, urgency and, and social proof is like kind of what I've noticed is like the three big factors that obviously doesn't mean you can't use use cases to drive demos. Of course you can. Um, but generally from what I've seen, that's been like the big three and really outside of incentivize demos with conversation ads or like Google search, people really struggle to drive demos in feed, especially on like non-incentivized. And you have to think about yourself, like or, or when you're on LinkedIn and you're not going to just see an ad out of nowhere and it's like, get a demo. And then you're just going to magically be like, you know what? My calendar's open today. I think, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's time, you know, it's, it's usually you have a pressing need, right? So there's some level of urgency. There's a big pain point you're trying to solve, or there's like some overwhelming social proof from a company that you respect, or even more powerful sometimes from a competitor. And you're like, what are yep. they doing with that thing that we're not? And I need to explore it. Now, we could probably open up a can of worms here, but I see incentivized demos taking heat all the time. And people talk about it on LinkedIn. We still run those. It works for us with our own unit economics. But what would you have to say to people who are like, should I do it? Should I not do it? Because it gets your foot in the door. There's not always a urgent need or pain point, but I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, I think about it in two ways. Number one, should I do it? Should I not do it? At the end of the day, if you do decide to do it, Look at the numbers in terms of actual pipeline created and more importantly, like revenue closed. If that is working well for you, then keep doing it. It's, it's working great. Now, the reason why having an incentive just is much better than not having an incentive, generally speaking, is because you're going to add, it's going to be a more attractive offer, right? And 
when you think about just going back to psychology and who we're trying to reach, right? Oftentimes people are targeting audiences that are not familiar with your brand, right? They don't know who you are, right? These are going like, if you want to break, break through advertising stages of awareness, we're talking unaware folks, maybe problem aware, but they're definitely not product or solution aware. And you're going up to these people with an offer to get a demo and there's no level of intent there. So by you having, you know, the actual gift card incentive that in the back of their mind, they, they have, you know, they have that assurance of if I get nothing from this, at least I'm $50 richer, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or at least I got a free meal or at least I got a coffee. So it makes it a more attractive offer. So of course you're going to get more hand raisers. And then that's where it really comes down to just looking at your unit economics. Like, yes, you're going to get more hand raisers. Of those hand raisers that you got, you have to pay out this, you know, amount in, you know, gift card incentives. But when you look in the back end of the amount of additional volume that you generated by having it versus not having it, oh, wow, it actually makes a ton of sense to do it. Let's keep doing it, right? And we can actually scale an offer that would typically not be scalable because we've made it more attractive. And that's where I think it's really powerful um, because you can, and then you can just drive a lot more of a bottom of funnel, high value offer than having and being forced to do a lot of the hard work of creating demand and, and kind of moving people through that process, you know? So before we jump out of the next point, we get asked about this all the time. So I'll share a few things about how this has played out at Metadata. So. When we were a marketing team of two in the middle of 2020, we relied almost exclusively on this. We also had almost zero brand awareness in the market. No one knew who we were. Our VP of sales was saying, if you ask B2B marketers, one out of 10 would actually have heard of metadata at that point. That is an amazing way to get your foot in the door. Now, we would have people show up who would just straight up say, I'm here for the gift card and take a demo and leave and you'd never hear it back. There are people who'd say that. And then at the end of the demo also say, whoa, this is really interesting. I was not expecting to like this. Let's have a follow up yeah. call. And then there are also people who take a demo. It doesn't work out. And they boomerang back six months later in their current role or a year later at their new company. And they're like, hey, I know I saw this tool. I wasn't ready then. I'm ready now. And it works. In addition to all the other people where this works out for us. So yes, there are wasted gift cards per se. It's something that we're waning off of, but it still works out for us. So I, I would suggest that people try it at their companies before they bash it. Yeah, don't like, don't rely on that forever. And we're talking about gift cards and combo ads and things like that. But same is true with Google search, demo requests, any channel, right? Like any bottom of funnel traffic, it's the most expensive. It's the most saturated. What is the statistic? Like only like 3% of any market is ready to make a buying decision. You know, it's, it's going to, and based on your total addressable market, how long you can play on the bottom of funnel will, will vary. It's like, if you have a much bigger TAM, hey, you might camp out there for a while. You know, like this is why like e-commerce brands and B2C that, you know, 10 million total addressable market and, you know, their average deal size, or in their case, like, um, you know, average sales price is $30. I mean, they can play all day bottom of funnel. You know what I mean? Because it just makes sense. But for B2B companies, especially if you're going to the enterprise and you have a small TAM, you're going to probably tap out really quick on that bottom of funnel for sure. Capture all you can, but then you're going to have to go on the offense for sure and start to create that demand and, and really start to create that, that intent, so to speak. Uh, and for sure, Mark, to just echo your point, like you're giving incentivized offers 
to the right people. Like, I think people often think like, oh, like, and I'm going to be targeting. This is an Oprah giving away gift cards. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. like I'm Santa Claus, you know, <laughs> like you get a gift card, you get a gift card. You know, it's like, no, like the VP of marketing at, you know, five, you know, $5 billion company is going to get a gift card. You know what I mean? Too funny. All right. I have a great idea for a Santa Silvio social clip. I'll see. The Santa Silvio. Uh, all right. Hawaiian, Hawaiian <laughs> <Silvio>. <laughs> oh, there's so many. All right. The next two uh, I'm very excited about because it's something I think that most people just aren't aware of. Uh, both are creative related. So let's get to the first one and the rise of more kind of authentic, like native advertising creative and kind of what you're seeing. This has been huge. Most people traditionally, when it comes to advertising, I think one of the biggest gaps folks fall into, and this is very specific to paid social we're talking about here. So let's just, you know, for context, we're talking about paid social. When people create content, they have like one hat on, but then when they run ads, they put on another hat. And what they don't, what they fail to realize is whether you're running something as an ad or you're running it as a content the same person is receiving it, assuming your targeting is similar, right? So people typically don't understand that when it comes to paid social, what you want to do is you want to take native best practices, things that work natively well for you. And this is where if you have a strong LinkedIn company page and you can post something and that post takes off, maybe the hook within that post is really strong or use a meme or something like this, take that and then push it as an ad. And that typically works really well. So following and creating content that is native to the channel. So when somebody sees it, they don't automatically think this is an ad. It gives me no value that, you know, one third of the ad is literally a CTA button saying, learn more, you know what I mean? Followed by another embedded CTA button from the channel. You know, there's not a lot of value there. Now I'm sometimes like, and this is where like creativity plays a big part. I know everybody wants just like a step-by-step cookie cutter and you know, you, but you got to put your thinking hat on. And in my opinion, that's like one of the most fun parts about being a marketer, but like you can have a lot of fun, but essentially native based ads that are, when they look at it, uh, either they don't, it doesn't scream of an ad number one. Right. And then number two, that it actually adds value in some way. And it provides a pattern interrupt. That's really what you're after. You're after that pattern interrupt. I've seen great ads from all different kinds, kinds of companies. Uh, I literally saw an ad from, I think it was CXL. It's like, this is an ad. The goal of the ad is, you know what I mean? It's, I, I, you know, lo- I love and that. It. That is a perfect yeah. example of a pattern interrupt and it adds value and it's humorous. You know what I mean? And that's really what you're going for. Uh, another great example is like the, the video ad that Jason's doing for the demo. He's like, hey, I'm Jason. You know, da, da, da. He's like, I would love to offer you. Like, it's cool. And it's, it's different versus, uh, you know, some like, corporate, you know, animated video where it's just like the really polished stuff. Yeah, like it doesn't exactly. need to be as polished as everybody like, think, thinks. Let's just, let's just take it back to basics here. What is the best content that goes viral on social? Is it stuff that people have a DSLR and like a custom photo shoot? Or is it literally people with like their iPhone and they're just doing like raw authentic videos? So take that look and apply it to your ads and obviously just take, you know, have your spin on it. But I think that's a big gap that a lot of folks don't realize, but that's also a big shift that I'm noticing. And people are becoming more flexible with their creative. Of course, you have to keep brand guidelines in mind. Your brand is unique, but that's also where you can have fun. Like if you're like the most 
uptight, boring, you know what I mean? Uh, type of like, let's talk, you know, to Ray, I love, I love you, but like cybersecurity, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's a like, you know, serious business kind of thing. You could play on that and you can have fun with that. Like you can, you know what I mean? Like there's so many opportunities there from like a branding perspective, like, you know, like where you can really use that to your advantage and like have that showcase. So yeah, I would say that's a big one. I've noticed more customers are literally using like Loom and they're just doing like screen videos and it's like their CSMs talking through things or it's a, somebody like a subject matter expert on their company and they're just literally just a, like a Loom screen, screen share video. I've seen companies doing really cool like one-to-one campaigns also where they're on the company's website that they're trying to get in contact with. And then they're pushing that to the company. Wow. Which is really cool and like unique and creative. And literally in terms of production time, it was like five minutes to make that video, maybe less, you know, factoring in the three oops, oops, take, retake. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody will talk about it. Got to restart the video. And uh, yeah, and, and it's, so, it's so good because here's the thing. Let's just go back to the, at the end of the day, like I always go back to the numbers. Factor in the cost of production. Factor in the amount of time, factor in the third-party help if necessary to produce that asset and the amount of that asset that you produced, and then quantify all of your results versus the non-produced stuff, the time to execution, the cost of headcount, and then see the quantifiable results from that and just go apples to apples. What was the end goal and the, what did we yield from unpolished versus fully polished? And hey, if polished, yields more for you, then by all means, keep doing it. But for most people, it's not the case. And when it comes to paid social advertising, the volume of creative required is astounding. Like people really don't realize how intense it can be. When I was in the B2C world, we were testing 40 variations of creative a week. A week. Yeah, like it's insane. It's insane. Like, cause we would have like a super quick fatigue time and like things would just die really fast. But we're like three variations of creative a week. And like, I know companies that are struggling to produce for creative a month. I worked at that company. That's what it was like for me (laughs) and my last company. And I didn't realize one, how important that was in a paid social context. And two, like how important frequency is and how stale it get like that quickly like people just don't realize. I think too that folks don't realize is people judge you based on your activity and how often they see you so if they're not seeing you they think you're like irrelevant they think you're not innovating they think you're not cutting edge like there's so many other things that come into it that come into play that outside of just did they actually click through you know sign up watch a video etc it's it's almost like I heard this from somebody and I thought it was like remarkable. It's like fame is the best business model in today's world. Truly, like, you know, everyone talks about like being a media company, but we are in an attention economy. And like the more attention that you can capture makes a massive difference. Because unfortunately, like you could be like the most shitty product in the world. Obviously, you're not going to last for very long. But if you're everywhere, people are going to hold you in a higher regard. And especially if your ads are actually valuable and, you know, you're just following a tenth of what we're talking about and you're leaving a good impression, people are going to hold you in a much higher regard than the company that they never see and they just get a pitch from the SDR out of the blue, you know what I mean? And it just falls on deaf ears versus I've seen that company everywhere. The SDR reached out to me. At least I have some sort of touch point I can refer back to. Yeah, let me see what's going on here, right? It's almost coming across like 
a colleague versus just a complete stranger. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. All right, next one. This one is interesting because this is something that I remember you and I were talking about probably a few months ago. We started to test it out and then it's now turned into something that you're recommending yeah. to everybody. So without being <laughs> any more cryptic, hit me. So what we're recommending now is that when you make a peanut butter jelly sandwich, you must always apply the peanut butter and the jelly. <laughs> so the, the recommendation that I talked about, uh, Chef Silvio, I need a chef hat, another one. Yeah. <laughs> Basically what I'm talking about is a while back, I had noticed this trend of 1200 by 1200 creative outperforming 1200 by 628. So essentially what does that look like in the LinkedIn or Facebook newsfeed? It's the 1200 by 628 is like almost like this rectangle type creative. And then the 1200 by 1200 is more of like a square. And for those that aren't watching, I have, I'm literally doing this with my fingers. And essentially now it's almost like it has become the best practice to use 1200 by 1200. And this is absent of objective. So whether you are doing demand creation or demand capture, otherwise put as lead generation versus brand awareness, this format of ad is doing better in terms of engagement and conversion. So I, I think it's going to become more and more of a just best practice. I honestly no longer recommend to customers to use 1200 by 628. I'm like, no, just do 1200 by 1200. Like the data supports it. And I'm just kind of seeing it be consistently good. I think even uh, in our marketing team, like we don't even use 1200 by 620 anymore. It's just 1200 by 1200 all the time, which is really cool. So outside of just telling your designer or your agency, hey, we're going to start doing 1200 by 1200. Are there any quick design tips that you would recommend that people take into consideration when they're using this new size? Honestly, it's as simple as that. Just change the size. It really is I as simple that as that because yeah. what it does is in the actual in the news feed, it, the 1200 by 1200 is longer. So it takes up more space and more real estate on the newsfeed. So since the ad essentially is bigger, it's more prominent, catches more attention, drives more click through, right? Drives more engagement, drives more conversion. All right. The last one, this is a surprise. I have no idea where it's going. If it's good, I'll take credit for it. If it's bad, it's Sylvia's. No, I'm kidding. Uh, all right. Okay. It's a cliffhanger. This is the final trend and insight that I'm noticing across the board. Like I would even almost classify it as game changer level. I'm noticing so many B2B marketers are joining the demand community. <laughs> and if you haven't already, you got to do it, man. The demand community. It's freaking awesome. Uh, like, like so many great conversations and I'm already noticing a bunch of our customers that are in there like praising it and saying how much value they're getting. I'm seeing people are connecting and like going off into their own Zoom calls and talking through common problems, which is like super valuable. That's honestly where I think a community is the most helpful. And it's super exciting to see that that's already happened given how short the community has been, you know, in existence. Yeah, you must be in marketing because that was a shameless plug. No, I think uh, it's something, and we'll share a little bit of detail on this now uh, or as much as, we can, but we are building a community. We're going small with it right now intentionally to start. And here's why. We do not have all the answers of what this community should look like. We are not building the community for us. We are building it for the community members and we're building it with the community members. So rather than go big right out of the gate with this community, 
we're having them involved in a lot of big decisions from the jump. Technology platform, like the format each month, the types of content and events that they want to see, like you name it, because it's really for them at the end of the day. And I'm in Exit 5. I'm in a couple other Slack communities. It's difficult to keep up with because some are good combos, some are eh. And I don't know about you, I've been blown away at the types of questions yeah. that have been asked so far. I think we've got about 175-ish members uh, a few days in. And the conversation and how much people are willing to share. No, it's pretty sure. They're asking like really like tactical, practical, everyday problem questions and very specific as well. Like how have you guys handled this specific thing, which makes it so much more valuable. And then I've even seen people like sharing screenshots of like their reporting and how they're doing things. I'm like, oh my God, this, this is amazing. So for sure. And for the Mark, but for those that, I know we're doing it in a slow roll and you know, I've said, Shameless plug because I am a marketer. Yep. Do we have like a wait list for those that, that want to sign up and just be on a wait list? Uh, we do not. I don't know why I didn't think of that. That is a genius answer uh, or idea. And I will create a wait list because we're going to go bigger with this in a few months. Uh, but we will definitely do that. The We did a ton of research on this over the last, I'd say, probably three, four months. And we just brought on Katie Ray, our head of community. She started... I think a little less than a month ago. Nothing like launching <laughs> your first Seriously. public. Uh, and one of the things that we heard consistently was that people wanted an intimate community. They wanted to have almost like peer groups or cohorts of people who work at similar stage companies or similar roles. And what we're going to try and do is make sure that we maintain that feel as we go bigger with this towards the end of this year. So we will, I'm going to create an Asana task for myself right now. We will have a wait list. We will get it started. And, uh, you know, we're looking forward to, to blowing this thing out and having some fun. And definitely. I love it. You didn't even have to, uh, I didn't have to ask you to pitch that <laughs> and, uh, plug it. So, uh, that's why I love having you on demand gen you, but Sylvia, this was awesome. I know we're basically running up at time we could go on for way longer like we always do but this is super informative and uh i'm sure everyone who listens will take a whole lot from this thanks for having me Alrighty, we'll see you next week on demand gen you thanks everybody thanks so much for listening to this episode of demand gen you if you want to hear more make sure to subscribe to get future episodes you can also submit a specific topic you want us to talk about by dming us on linkedin if you like the show or want to share feedback, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep improving and get the word out to other marketers just like you. This podcast is brought to you by Metadata, the first demand generation platform that launches paid campaigns that self-optimize to revenue. If you're looking for a tool that makes it easier for you to build audiences, launch paid campaigns, and experiment at scale, you'll love Metadata. B2B marketers at Zoom, Okta, and ThoughtSpot use metadata to automate the time-consuming parts of running paid campaigns so they can focus on the things that matter.